Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Daniel Galati, for the introduction to our guest today, Alon Block. Alon is the founder and CEO of K-Health. K-Health is where you can get personalized health answers and fast. It's the closest doctor's office in your pocket, trusted by over 4 million patients. Alon is also a serial entrepreneur who founded not one, but two companies that went public, Wix and Vroom. On this show, we ask what his process is to determine whether or not to start a company, how he thinks about markets, and why he wanted to innovate within the health sector, and much, much more. Without further ado, here's a lot. Alon, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good, and you? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for being on the show. I want to start from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to become an entrepreneur? You know, I think it was a process. It wasn't like in the movies where I woke up or just knew it. I didn't always know that I was going to become an entrepreneur or even go into business for that matter. So it was in stages. I became CEO for the first time. I think I was 37 years old. So um, it wasn't kind of the first I did. And I was a venture capitalist before. I think... It was really just um, an evolution around my personality traits of being a little bit rebellious, a little bit not accepting no for an answer and not accepting uh, formality and authority in in a standard way. A little bit about intensity and just curiosity around why things are working in a certain way and shouldn't they be working in another way. And a little bit just of life experience and realizing that I really enjoy the dynamic adrenaline driven aspect of being an entrepreneur. So I think all of those together led me to that. No, that, that makes a lot of sense in terms of, yeah, uh, the, the reasons why, um, why entrepreneurship, uh, your attraction to entrepreneurship. Since you were a uh, venture capitalist before, we've had a number of folks on the show that were first entrepreneurs, maybe had successful exits and then became venture capitalists. But I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of curious, what were some of the parts about, about being a VC that, um, really actually helped you become an entrepreneur? I think I met a wide range of entrepreneurs. Some of them I invested in, some of them I got to know and didn't invest in. So first of all, it's fascinating. I think that's the most fun part of being a VC. You sit next to, in front of really, really smart people who are trying to solve various technological problems or societal problems. And they're pitching you the ideas and you can challenge them and they can discuss it with you. It's a lot of fun, uh, first of all, just on a daily basis, right? I think I saw a wide variety of entrepreneurs. I saw entrepreneurs I backed that became successful. I saw entrepreneurs I backed that were not successful. And of course, it's, it's, it's a gradient. So people are successful in certain things and not in others. I saw our companies develop and grow. What does that mean giving an investor a commitment in terms of a plan? Uh, what happens on the board later on? All those different dynamics are, are things I looked at. Of course, I saw people that were successful or not that I didn't invest in. So it was just interesting to see. 
I tend to think you learn most from things that don't work uh, because it's things that work, you know, the great entrepreneur who was super successful, it always looks a little bit easy. It's like uh, watching a, a great sportsman, you know, winning and it looks like they haven't broken sweat, right? Sometimes it just looks easy, right? When they do it. And then when you need to do it, it's tough. So just seeing just mere mortals battling ups and downs of companies, all that kind of stuff. So to me, it was super interesting to watch. And then of course, a lot of fun to jump in and do it, do it myself. What compelled you to start with Wix? What was like the origin story behind that? Well, with Wix, I knew one of the founders well. I was friendly with him. We backed him when I was at my venture firm. We backed him in 2000 or 99. And he had a very ambitious technology platform that ended up not being successful, but was a casualty of the dot-com and the and that period. And he was, he figured out what he wanted to do next. And he came to talk to me about it. I was looking to see that as part of my venture firm, left my venture firm, they raised an angel round. Um, you know, at the time, this is 2007 or 2006. So um, rounds were much smaller, they were much more modest. So I think he, the Wix raised $1.2 million in their seed round just from angel investors. And then I stayed in touch with, with the three founders at a very small team. And they had a, a concept that they were working on, but the product wasn't yet working. And we spoke about a variety of things. I used to come over to the offices and meet them from time to time. I was trying to figure out what to do next. And then it kind of all came together. Um, there was venture capital interest. The founders asked me to join and it kind of, kind of all came together. So I joined in, I think, late 2007 out of memory, but I might be off by a couple of months here and there. What makes a market attractive for you to want to start a business? It's a great question, but it, you know, I, I, I hate to answer by it depends. I think, um, so first of all, that's changed for me over years, but fundamentally I'm, I tend to look for markets that are built for a different era, for a different need and haven't moved away from where they were because everything started calcifying. Everything got it set in, you know, there's typically an oligopoly that makes most of the profit and most of the revenue. Uh, there's typically a way that consumers, whether they're businesses or, or end, end users, interact with the business and the offering. And these things tend not to change much. Over the years, I've realized it's very difficult to take a very successful business that's highly profitable and it has a lot of legacy assets and have them think about changes. They, they just don't like, they rebel against doing that. Their DNA is not there. To me, I look for things that are, I don't think about TAM. Everybody talks about TAM. To me, there's, there's some obvious TAMs out there, right? I don't need to know about TAM when I think about healthcare or energy or education or you know, other major markets. I think more about, okay, what do people really need if it was up to them? And how far is the current offering from that? And what are the societal changes that enable that? Because we talk a lot about technology. The technology is just a tool, right? So we have, you know, these supercomputers that we call mobile phones, but that is really an empowerment, right? Why? Because you have maybe data, maybe you have capabilities in decision-making, maybe you have ubiquity and access, maybe you have different things. So now you can look at things differently. Technology is just an enabler, but it's really consumers need to think, okay, I want to do things very differently. So 
a long-winded way to answer your question. I'm looking for stuff that is a combination of things set in stone in a certain way, different era, different need, coupled with societal change and uh, technology that could enable things to be done very, very differently. And I don't mean 10% better or 100% better. I mean, you know, a thousand percent better, 10,000 percent better. I, I would say I would say I'm looking for a big departure between what people actually need and what they get, or businesses, you know, for that matter. So a, an end user. I at this point I don't think insiders can, can make the leap. It just, it just doesn't happen. So I, I don't think the insiders can do it. They have a lot of power. They have a lot of assets. They might have very strong brands, very strong distribution. The, the opportunity here is just a very, very big gap between something that's used in the present and something that's actually needed. And so with all this being said, uh, with K-Health, why did you decide to innovate and start a company within healthcare? Well, I think in K, I first think about health, not healthcare. It was just based on a personal set of experiences that my co-founders and I had around, around our own health experiences. It K evolved in, in stages, but it started about around a, a desire, an intense desire, I would say, to give myself and my loved ones access, direct access to high quality medical information and decision making without either going to Dr. Google and scaring myself shitless around wrong and scary information and without um, necessarily going to see a doctor because of the complexity of seeing a doctor, because for a lot of people it's scary, because they speak in big multisyllable words in Latin. I wanted to give myself access because I have access to a lot of sophisticated information around my money, my car, my real estate, my commerce, but not around my health. And so that was, and it was based on the fact that I felt like there was a whole set of personal experiences that could have been dealt with much better as in a preventative manner if I had access to that information. So that was what I was looking to do in, in stage one. I wasn't thinking about it as healthcare, I was thinking about it as health. I, I didn't understand the healthcare space at all. And my quest was to teach a machine the language of medicine, to teach a machine and enable a machine to have software, to have an intelligent conversation with me about my health to the point that it can help me better understand uh, what I have, what else could it could be, how to treat it. And then over time, we added a big medical layer because people not only want to know what they have, but they also want to resolve it. And of course, now you're starting to grapple with the healthcare system and money and go to market and all that good stuff. What was that first step of getting access to that information? I'd imagine, I'd imagine that, that that's also you know, quite a large data set. And what, what types of data were you looking for? That's where it gets really interesting, right? Because generically you say, well, I want a whole bunch of data. I need a whole petabyte of data. I'm going to go look all over the world. I will borrow bigger, steal my way into that data. And I want to be able to then take the data and learn from it or manipulate it in a way that can be helpful to other people in different settings, right? Well, data doesn't really exist in that way, right? For starters, the most credible data to understand medicine is what doctors do when they see a patient, right? 
we all know, you know, you've, you've seen medical charts, right? It, it describes the patient and the patient is a 35 year old female suffering from uh, stomach pains uh, for the last uh, two days or two hours or two weeks. They're on and off or constant, they're uh, mild or severe. They're accompanied by nausea and vomiting or no nausea and vomiting, maybe loss of appetite, maybe no fever. You have all that information. And a doctor who goes to capture that information, including also if the patient is, say, pregnant or not pregnant, uh, diabetic or not diabetic, or you know, allergic to different things, different experiences she's had in, in my fictitious example. All this information is very rich information the doctors use. Uh, if you think about that first diagnostic visit, that acute visit, somebody comes in and the doctor says, well, why are you here? My stomach hurts. And then the doctor starts in to interrogate the patient. It's called an anamnestic conversation, which the doctor is trying to diagnose, to figure out, to do a differential diagnosis of, of you know, the patient. I wanted to get my hands on that. When people talk about data, well, there's a lot of different types of data in America. There is, or in the world for that matter, right? There's uh, various um, tests and treatment that people do. There's lab data, there's x-rays, there is um, CAT scans, there's hospitalizations, there's structured data, there's, there's unstructured data. And then there's also claims data, right? What a doctor types in in the electronic medical record and sends as a bill to the, the, the insurer to pay for it, right? Um, say it's, you know, you know, a blue or United or Cigna, right? So um, what we were looking for is the raw diagnostic data. The issue there is you need to get it in a format that is um, HIPAA compliant and privacy, and you can't, you know, reverse that information back to the original patient. So that was a big step to try and find that and be, you know, nobody would give us the data, right? Because Hospitals or, or large health systems have a lot of data, but they don't use it for health needs. They use it for billing. They use it for workflow. You go to a doctor and a doctor says, well, you know, uh, you have a headache. I asked you a bunch of questions. Your headache is sinusitis. I think it's sinusitis. I'm going to give you a prescription. You go and pick it up. There's a whole cascade of billing activities that happen there, right? The doctor needs to know to send you a prescription. The pharmacy needs to know that you're coming to pick up the prescription. They need to know the dosage. Um, uh, who's pay, who pays for, for what based on your insurance is it deductible. Just think of how much workflow and, and, and billing goes into that even simple transaction, right? Because you might have many different types of insurance or maybe you're uninsured, you know, and I need to know where to send that information to you, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That is what data is used for in healthcare today, in a, in a ubiquitous manner, right? What data is not used in healthcare today, aside from kind of various research projects and labor of love, is using that data for, for health. And so we were looking for rich underlying clinical data, not claims data, and we were looking for data that could be used that had longitudinal data. What I mean by longitudinal data is we want to see a user or a patient over time. So they had a complaint about a headache and it was sinusitis, but did they have other sinusitis in the past? Did that matter to the doctor? 
Do they have other things going on? Do they have lab work? Uh, did that sinusitis go away or did it develop into something else? Did the person ready to have a migraine or a tension headache and not a sinusitis? You know, all these different things where diagnosis change. And I, so we wanted to look at data over a long period of time, so weeks, months, years, and see outcome data. And so we ended up licensing a data set from an HMO in Israel uh, that is a vertically integrated HMO where there is doctors, there is hospitals, there is a captive lab, captive drugstore, and people live their health lives within a single healthcare system, a single EMR, and they don't switch much between HMOs. So that was our starting point, you know, you know, two million, uh, just over two million members of that HMO, but over a 20 year period of time. So that was a vast amount of data. I'm curious of, were there specific diagnosis that you were first looking for to launch or whether it was a headache or what have you, was there a specific diagnosis that you thought of um, as entry point? So, you know, first of all, so we licensed the data from an HMO in Israel, as I mentioned, called Maccabi. And I really owe Maccabi a lot because they allowed us to jumpstart our whole work. Because generally, just if you think about where we came initially, just giving people information, there's various symptom checkers and rules-based systems out there. Usually they take 10 or 50 doctors and they tell them, hey, go write the book of medicine in a series of if-then rules. If woman and stomach ache, assess pregnancy. If headache, then ask the next following question, right? Writing the book of medicine in a series of rules that are tens of thousands of rules is really, really tough to do. And so most of these symptom checkers, that's how they started. They took, you know, a thousand or 10,000 medical vignettes and they started connecting them and started, you know, tying in all these different pieces of, you know, what's called evidence-based medicine, symptoms and chief complaints and lab results and, you know, chronic diseases. And, you know, that, that's very, very complicated. Um, we started with data. And yes, our challenge was different, but our challenge was to extract the data. So we had, you know, many tens of millions of medical charts and hundreds of millions, actually probably over a billion lab results, hundreds of millions of prescriptions, all tied to the same people, right? And so now we need to, to extract the information. If I said to you, Mike, uh, here's 100 million medical charts and a billion lab results of 2 million people and 500 million prescriptions and a million hospitalization. And, you know, why don't you take a thousand people in 10 years and try and figure out what this means? After 20 years, you'd probably still be working on it if you're trying to do something. Right? So because it's a lot, right? Just think a doctor sees in their entire career, uh, tens of thousands of people, maybe a little bit more, depending on you know what they do, serving up tens of millions of medical interactions and that have some kind of connection between other events like labs and prescriptions is really complex. So we needed to teach our machine and build a medical ontology that understand the basics. What is gender, male, female? Is that your core biology? What is, um, what is medical history? Uh, what's you know medical history say being diabetic or having allergies or you know taking Lipitor or having high cholesterol? What is a chief complaint? A headache? What are specific symptoms associated with headache? Right side, left side, only in the morning, only in the evening, and then try and get all these things to tie in together. Smoking, negative symptoms, you know, a lot of different things, and that's really really tough to do. In machine learning, what, what we did was kind of extracted features. We taught a machine what is a headache, 
how that related to various attributes, and then created an ontology that has a logical and statistical and semantic understanding of all these different elements, just like a human does it, but just different. Our machine, again, didn't go to medical school. It didn't work in a clinic or in a hospital for years. It didn't see many, many cases in that way. Our machine read through you know, these hundreds of millions of medical events. And based on the fact that we trained it, was able to put together uh, you know, this medical ontology. And, and then we built these series of, of classifiers. Now, we focused your question about headaches. We focused on that kind of initially on acute primary care and then broaden, broaden out to primary care. So with the goal of being your, your entry point to all things health, right? Um, so even big conditions like uh, diabetes, oncology, we decided not to focus on just go really deep on one big condition, which is a whole world in its own, but focus on that primary care layer on those first days, weeks, and months of interacting with the healthcare system around something acute, something chronic, or something that you want to kind of avoid acute or chronic, right? So that was our world. And we, you know, we, we, we built a series of models that try to help us engage with users and interact with users around specific things. So two things you need in machine learning or AI. One is you need a lot of data that's relevant and high quality, and that's not obvious. And most companies that turn around and claim that they have AI or use AI usually have very limited type of data. So I think their AI is quite limited as well, and they use a lot of rules to cover for that. And then the other thing is AI is not just, you know, robots going out. It's not like a movie from the 70s, like a robot taking over the world. These are narrow aspects of AI. It's built by people for people to solve certain problems. And the problems we wanted to solve is, given a set of symptoms of something bothering me, like a headache or a stomach ache or a rash, you know, what could it be? What else could it be? You know, sh you know should, should I consider other stuff aside from if it's a headache? Is it, you know, likely to be a migraine or a tension headache or a sinusitis? Could it be something else? What, you know, what doctors call a ruler, you're more, you're maybe more dangerous or more rare or less obvious. And then what are all the different ways to treat it? So we went quite narrow around that and focused from a primary care standpoint. And that, that was our, you know, our, our ethos. How do we take from data, extract relevant stuff uh, and package it in a way that, that humans, that us, you know, people can interact with a machine around their health in an accurate and you know relevant manner, you know. So that's that was the set of activities that we did uh, to get started in 2017 and 2018. Thank you, thank you for that. I really appreciate you spelling out the that first year two of when you started at K Health. I think that AI gets thrown out a lot for companies, and since of course K Health very much relies on AI and the algorithm that you've built. What do you think, though, just more broadly and generally, what do you think is most misunderstood about AI? So first of all, there are different types of AI. I think often, we, you know, as I said earlier, when people think of AI, they think about some kind of superior intelligence. It's a general artificial intelligence that can do everything on the fly. It's kind of like a human, works differently, and has its own objectives. And it's rather scary. I think I'm a little bit older than you. I, I grew up in the 70s. I was a kid in the 70s and the 80s. So a lot of it was, was movies, was robots that had, you know, in the movies, general artificial intelligence. Whereas we have specific tasks that we're looking to do 
And it's not about AI competing with the human. It's AI complementing the human, whether for collecting information, making sense of the information, or for better decision making. But humans are really, 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 really good in certain things, especially to solve problems that that interest humans. And evolution in the world is full of you know animals and biology that is focused on, on solving certain problems. Machines can take a lot of data, and if you if they serve, if machines serve the right kind of data, and then you're trying to model. Some, a type problem to, to solve, you're potentially doing a better job than, than a human would do. And that's where it gets, you know, really interesting. How do you track changes in a diabetic patient over a long period of time? Well, how does your doctor do it, right? And so if somebody's diabetic and you want to track various changes, there's various clinical protocols and rules. But if you want to look at a lot of people over a long period of time, it's very difficult for a doctor to hold it in his or her head and it's very difficult to, to manage that kind of process and figure out, okay, here's various alerts, here's interesting things, here's things to send out. Machines, the right kind of machines with the right kind of data have a much better potential to do that, right? And, that, and that's, get, that's where it gets you know, really interesting. So just to close the loop on your question, I think the way to think about our AI and other people's, a lot of the stuff's working is, is to, you know, what's a job to be done, how to do that job very, very specifically, and potentially do it much better and also probably much cheaper than the alternatives that are done today. And, and that's the series of things we're trying to achieve. So our software and our machine learning is built by people for people to solve specific needs that we have. So after you were able to build out the software, your model, and this incredible machine, what was your route to market? So then we built a services layer that sits on top K because people didn't just want to know that their headache was a migraine or sinusitis. They also wanted to resolve it. And last time I checked, if you have a headache or a rash or something's a pain or an ache or something's bothering you, you want to resolve it right now. Whether it's 10 p.m. or the weekend or you're in the middle of work, you want to resolve it, right? Nobody has the worst headache in the world or even just a UTI or sinusitis or eye pain and says, well, let me go and sleep on it and tomorrow I'll try and squeeze it and see my doctor, right? So we wanted to give people this magical capability of, okay, I have a problem. I can resolve it in a matter of minutes. So we built a services layer that we call KMD, that we have board-certified physicians. Uh, we now also have uh, APP nurses, but we have coverage across the 48 continental states 24-7 and enable people to get, not only understand what their headache is, but let's say it's sinusitis, get a prescription on the spot and do it at a much, much lower price point, even lower than their copay and we don't take insurance. So that's what we built and we're in the process of continuously expanding that and going into primary care and offering people a way to get a full-blown management of their health remotely is, you know, we're, we're strong believers that most of this can be done really, really well in a very accessible manner in a very different cost structure remotely. What's like the next part that you're working on for K Health and how you're expanding? So, if you think about what we did or what we're doing, really, is we're building a compounding capability to be more helpful to our users over time. So, people need information. They need doctors, they need medication, they need labs, and ideally they need it right now for anything acute, right? If I've got a question or pain or concern, I want to be in front 
of the health system right now. I want to be able to press a button and get the information and resolve my problem. And yeah, if somebody needs to go to the ER, by all means, they need to go to the ER. Um, but even that's really, really helpful, right? Because you don't know. If you're not a doctor, you don't know, actually, is it serious? Do I need to go to the ER? In many cases, you don't know. So we're working on expanding our offering to build this broad primary care capability with a capital P. Um, the issue is, really, if you think about primary care, it means different things to different people. People think about their doctor, and she is, you know, does certain things for them. Maybe they have, you know, a background disease like hypertension or allergies. Maybe uh, they only go for uh, acute care. Maybe they go for health checkups. But fundamentally, people like the idea of having a highly credible resource that they can lean on for all things medicine. Traditionally, it counts as a lot of friction. So step one is how to remove friction. Step two is, as I mentioned to you earlier, is how do I, we learn from the data? How do we personalize it and make it better over time? Somebody's got not one sinusitis headache, but a sequence. Is the sequence normal? How to, is there a way to discover it early on? Is there better treatments with fewer side effects? These are never any questions. Is this tied to genetics? Is this tied to what you eat? Is this tied to how you feel? Um, and if you remember in the beginning, I told you I like industries that um, are, I like trying to solve problems in industries that were built for a different era for a different need. Well, doctor's office was built for a different era for a different need because a lot of primary care medicine is based on, on things of like the Framingham study from the 50s and a lot of the know-how is there. Drugs have developed and surgeries and procedures are magically and there's a lot of development in, you know, robotic surgery and immunotherapy and mRNA vaccines. A lot of the core delivery of primary care, managing diabetes, managing hypertension, managing thyroid, managing acute aches and pains, preventative, uh, avoiding diabetes, avoiding heart issues, um, is still stuck 50, 60 years back. It's still highly manual. There's no way to learn from the data unless somebody has a specific project. And by and large, you know, that doesn't happen. So we're looking to build a system that we make it no-brainer for you. I have a question. I can be in front of whatever I need right now. Information, doctor, lab, tests, referral, whatever, right now. Why should it take days and weeks to, to be in front of that? B, I want to make it much, much cheaper by moving away all the stuff that is unnecessary. Um, removing anything that's not helpful for the user, not trying to get paid to do stuff, but trying to give people what they need. And then learn from the data and get better over time. Those are the things we're looking to do. So it's a little bit never ending, but genetics is not used in primary care for the most part, aside from say prenatal. And 23andMe and you know um, various other aspects of genetics are, are not integrated into primary care. And we need more robust solutions and just a handful of, of genetic traits. There's a lot of knowledge, but it's not integrated. Why? Because again, medicine is complicated. It's tough. Tying these things together is not obvious. Building you know, clinical protocols is not obvious. Genetics is one example. You know, nutrition, we know matters a lot. How do you integrate the nutrition and lifestyle and sleep? People are wearing wearables. You try and give your, your wearable information to your primary care physician and see what she says or he says, right? It's uh, they don't already know what to do with it and they don't know how to handle it and they don't have a business model for that. You know, and the same goes with mental health. We know these things are closely tied, but how exactly it works and how to create an integrated system is something we haven't done. So those are um, 
some of the things we're thinking about. I just described to you the next five to 10 years and not necessarily stuff that is all coming out tomorrow. But that's the direction we're heading. Do you see a future where K-Health, it could also be connected with your wearable, for example. So you have that information stored as well on K-Health. So they actually have data as well to understand day-to-day how the patient or how the user actually is. So absolutely. My general view is more data is good. There is a big caveat to this, right? Let's say you and I have a wearable and it takes our heart rate. We do various things in life. We exercise, we sleep, we, we eat, we drink caffeine, we drink alcohol, all these different things impact our heart. We have our own genetics. And, um, you know, what does it mean? So now your pulse is 100. Did you drink coffee? Did you drink two cups of coffee? Are you anxious? You know, what does that mean? So medicine has guidelines for a lot of these different things. If we're going to start sending the health system a bunch of beeping anomalies without knowing what it is, you're just going to overload a system that doesn't fully understand all these different things. Because if your heart rate went up from Let's say your resting heart rate is 70 and it went up to 90. Okay, it went up to 90 for five minutes. Maybe you drank a coffee 45 minutes ago, maybe not. And let's assume for a second you weren't vigorously exercising. So, you know, what does that mean? This is where you want to be careful from inundating a system, but you want to integrate all of this together. So, you know, what's the baseline of the person? Are there any risk factors? What are you trying to achieve? And again, this is where it gets really complicated. Medicine is complicated. It's very context specific. So the more context we can create around more people, the the more helpful it is. By the way, that's what the Framingham Studies genius was, is creating a lot of context around, you know, nutrition and lifestyle, sedentary lifestyle and smoking and cholesterol and and heart conditions, right? You needed to have a lot of information there, even if people anecdotally, doctors anecdotally knew that these things are connected, they didn't know exactly how and and what it how it looks like. So this is kind of again a a long-winded way to say that. Yes, more data is important, but you also need to be very specific and granular in terms of how it's going to be used and who uses it and what does that mean? Because sending doctors a ton of information, they don't really have a clinical protocol to work against, is just going to overload the system, create more anxiety across the board, and you know, it's, not, it's just going to overpower the system. I also wanted to know, what were some of your takeaways during this past year on COVID and maybe how you think people are maybe now thinking about their health and also maybe when it came to innovation within health and healthcare and just people thinking about um, maybe their mortality. My general view is COVID hit us already when we had a very clunky, very expensive healthcare system, right? So, and in America, very, very uneven in terms of different gradients of quality. So as per usual, the people who needed most help around COVID or just manage their chronic conditions tend to be people that actually have under-indexed their access for various reasons. So on the one hand, you know, it just it just showcased just how how less than optimal our healthcare system is and how much it should be, you know, better. And just expose a whole host of issues that that, that are happening. On, on the good news front is I never quite understood why telemedicine rules, telehealth rules are just, you know, have limitations by state because last time I checked, when I go from New York to New Jersey, my body doesn't change. And yet you have all these, these state restrictions, again, built for a different, different needs. But, you know, I get it in the world of law because every state has got a you know, slightly different um, legal structure, but 
in the world of health, you know, we're probably pretty much the same or identical, in fact. So just, you know, there's, I think there's, it's going to encourage innovation. It's, it's going to encourage, I think, thoughtful approaches to, okay, how do we give people more access that's higher quality at lower cost? I think you're going to see a torrent of, of initiatives. Most of them will fail, but it doesn't matter. I think we are in the early stages of a tectonic shift from our current healthcare uh, system that's really, really expensive, for the most part, not very good, and just very clunky. I want to see a doctor. It's days, weeks. It's expensive. It's multi-step. It's offline. It's manual. I have to move it in a very different way. I think in five or 10 years, you'll say, oh, you remember the days that you know you had a headache or you needed a drug refill and I need to book an appointment and I only got to see a doctor in a few days. And I went there and I explained my symptoms and I was sneezing on everybody and the doctor didn't know it was viral or bacterial, but, you know, said, why don't you try A and then try B? You know, all, all these things are, are not how we do with our money. Um, you don't go to, when you need pay for something, you don't walk down to your bank, stand in line, tell your teller you need $200, pay them a fee and walk away with cash money, right? Nobody does it today. Um, and I'm not comparing uh, taking out money to going to a doctor, different, different skill sets and different capabilities, but we resolve it in so many other parts in our lives, and yet we haven't done that. We need really, really good electronic medical records that focus on medicine, not on billing. We need much better ways to route people through systems between primary care and specialty care. We need to build much deeper contacts about people. We need to hand the medical information to the users so they can control. You have all these different things, and I think people are ready for it. So I think, you know, there's been a terrible toll with, with COVID, but I, I think we this is going to encourage a lot of, okay, we really need to change things. My final question for you is, what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that has inspired you professionally? I need to open up my Audible. Um, I try not to listen to business books that much, although I am listening to Shoe Dog now about um, Phil Knight and, and Nike. And it's a fascinating book, but I'm midway through, so I'm going to uh, wait for you know for, for a conclusion until I finish reading it. I, I tend to try and listen to things that are more around history and science. So those are things that are just interesting for me, and, and they, they always have a lot of parallels to business, but I try and Think about business in other areas and struggle and, and, and change. And, you know, so um, that's what I would say generally. I can look up my Audible list here and, and, and tell you one or two books that, that I particularly liked in the last year. Um, you know, I, I think uh, one, I mentioned a couple of books that stand out. One is um, Range by David Epstein around how, you know, everybody wants to specialize, but having a broad set of experiences and, and, and thought processes actually sometimes works better. But you don't, you're not destined to do something just because at the age of two or five or 10, you started, you know, putting in your 10,000 hours into that. That's kind of um, one book that, um, that uh, stood out. Um, give me a second here. Yeah, I've actually been meaning to read that book. He had a great um, interview on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast. Yeah. I, another book that I found um, fascinating was um, Until the End of Time by Brian Greene. Um, really trying to describe how the universe started and where it's going to. 
but you, he does get quite philosophical about the concept of time and where it's going to. And in epochs or periods that we can't quite comprehend, you think billions of years and then trillions of years and what happens to the planet. So you're trying to imagine both the beginning and how it all started in the end. That was an amazing book. You just need to listen to it. I, I listened to my books again. So you listen to it quite slowly because certain parts are, you need to really focus. And I actually also really liked uh, The Premonition by Michael Lewis. And all these books are fantastic. But he talks about the CDC in the early, early days of COVID and what the CDC did and didn't do. Um, but again, it points out to the complexity of the healthcare system. I mean, one memorable anecdote from that book is um, when COVID broke out already in California, the Sean Zuckerberg Foundation offered free COVID tests in the state of uh, California and yet couldn't get local hospital groups to send them tests. And these tests cost $130, $160 in the big, uh, big lab companies because there was no way for the hospital not to pay for it. They had no ability in the EMR to get this for free. And it just shows you how, how these things are already built in a stodgy manner. But so it's just a, a powerful way of, you know, we could have, for example, in, in this specific example, tested a lot more in the early days of COVID in, in California, for free, by the way. And yet we didn't do it because the healthcare system was just too much in its own way and didn't work in the use of favor. And, and that's just something I see again and again in healthcare, where it's not focused on the user. It, it loses a plot. It focuses on making money or certain processes or this is how we do things and not actually on what people need. Um, it's, it's also just, of course, a sad story about how we could have done a better job, right? Because supposedly we should have been ready for this great pandemic. And yet when it hit, we can make decisions fast enough. We didn't make the right decisions. And we certainly, you know, didn't leverage a fantastic healthcare system to do a lot of the right things. Anyway, I don't want to finish on a sad note, but three books that really stood out for me, but I really, really appreciative of, of Audible because I can listen to, otherwise I just, I read maybe one book a year this way. I can listen to, you know, a couple of books a month. Yeah, no, that, no, no. I also love Audible. I use Audible and Libby. Libby is like the library version of Audible, and so you can just rent books uh, from there, which is also great. But um, these three books sound amazing. I didn't realize that actually Michael Lewis put out a new book, The Premonition. So I'll, I'll certainly have to check that out. Alan, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Alan. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 